From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, different ways the pandemic continues to have an effect beyond people getting sick. For one nonprofit working to prevent sexual violence, it means an end to some of the things it can do. Then, it's a catch-22 for wildlife in Colorado. At first, the stay-at-home orders at the beginning of the pandemic meant animals had a little more breathing room to roam around. Now, as people head back outdoors after being cooped up for so long, it's the opposite. And in some cases, encroachment is a bigger problem than before the restrictions. Plus, there's a lot more riding on reopening for Central City than gambling. The opera is the backbone of our cultural existence up here in Central City. And amid the calls for racial justice and equity, we revisit where voter suppression comes into consideration. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The Boulder nonprofit Mesa, moving to end sexual assault, has been a resource for victims and the fight against sexual violence for nearly 50 years. But in the wake of the pandemic and economic shutdown, some grant programs have cut their budgets. That's had a domino effect. Mesa will lose a significant portion of its funding this week. Director Janine DeAnnabal is here to talk about what this means for victims and the community moving forward. Hi, Janine. Good morning, Avery. What services will you no longer be able to provide? So we will no longer be able to provide presentations and uh, educational programming to prevent sexual violence in schools and in the community, which is uh, devastating for our county. So you'll move to more of to focusing solely on response and less on prevention. Exactly. There were 169 reported sexual assaults in the city of Boulder in 2019. That's a five-year high. Talk about the loss of this kind of programming and what it means for the community, especially now. Well, as we know, um, sexual assault has devastating both physical and psychological effects on victims. Uh, It's estimated the CDC put out an article in 2017 that for every victim of rape, it costs us about $122,000 in physical health costs, mental health costs, criminal justice costs. And the sad part about this is sexual violence is preventable. We can actually do something about this. And uh, the, the frustrating part is we can't do that, of course, without financial support. And tell us a little bit more about the prevention work that you do in schools. I know CU Boulder has its own prevention and training, and you often work with younger students, right? That's right. That's right. We'll go start as early as middle school, high schools, to really work about creating a better school culture around sexual assault issues. So addressing sexual violence at its roots. So addressing rape culture, um, sexist jokes, objectification of women, uh, the minimization of sexual assault, and then give students and and people tools to intervene, like through bystander intervention and understanding about consent. So those are real specific skill building things we do in the schools. And how many people would you reach in an average year with your training? In an average year, we reach about 1,500 people. Uh, about 1,200 students and maybe 500 community members on an average year. 
So something that we've been hearing a lot is that the financial impact of the pandemic has had this domino effect. Funding gets lost now, which means money needs to be moved around, and in turn, it impacts other revenue streams down the road. Could the ripple effects of this hurt other areas of your organization? I'm concerned about that, Avery. Um, We've seen in the last two years about a 30% increase in the demand for our services. And yet even pre-COVID, right, our funding was decreasing by about 10%. So that's not a good trend. And now with COVID, we are concerned there's going to be even more cuts due to state and federal uh, cuts and budget shortages. When the stay-at-home order began, there were concerns that the rates of domestic violence would surge. And I feel like that can go hand-in-hand with types of sexual violence cases that you see. Did you notice an uptick in requests for your services during that time? Exactly, Avery. Interestingly, we saw initially when we first started social distancing in March, April, we saw uh, requests for services go way down. Um, But then, interestingly, in May, we had our highest call volume of 2020. Um, So we had 172 calls just in May to our to our hotline. Um, So people calling about sex assault issues. So we definitely saw an uptick. And are you hearing from other nonprofits who are in a similar funding situation? Very much so. You know, we're in a pandemic. We're in the midst of an epidemic of racism, of course, and um, and yet we have these other social problems, uh, sexual assault, domestic violence that just don't go away during this time of a pandemic. And uh, I'm concerned that other nonprofits who deal with other social justice and social issues you know, could be really at a loss. And what's the plan for moving forward to try to make those programs a reality again as you work toward reinstituting that those prevention measures? Well, Avery, we're, we're looking for grant funding, as we always do at Moving to End Sexual Assault. But honestly, if the community wants this service, if the community wants to prevent sexual violence, we're going to need individual um, and corporate support for this. So we're asking people to really donate to become sponsors of our programs with evergreen memberships, just like CPR has, and really get behind these initiatives to end the violence. Janine, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Avery. Janine DeAnnabal is the director of MESA, moving to end sexual assault in Boulder. After a break, how the pandemic has affected wildlife in Colorado in two completely different ways. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Members are an essential source of funding for Colorado Public Radio, but not everyone can give right now. So to inspire essential support during this difficult time, an anonymous donor is matching your gift with a $100,000 grant. Make a donation now. It's easy. Choose an amount that fits your budget and then go on with your day knowing you're not only supporting your listening, you've also doubled your impact. Donate to participate at CPR.org. The novel coronavirus is affecting more than just humans. Biologists believe Colorado's wildlife is also suffering from the virus, not because animals are getting sick, but because of people. Before COVID-19 hit, elk herd numbers were down as much as 50 percent in parts of Colorado. Now wildlife officials are watching with concern as more people than ever are headed to the hills for quarantine relief, crowding into animal habitat, which was already shrinking.
Larry Desardan heads up Steamboat Springs area wilderness advocacy group called Keep Route Wild. Hi, Larry. Good morning, Avery. And Matt Yamashita is the area wildlife manager for the Roaring Fork and Eagle Valleys, which includes Vale, Aspen, Eagle, Gypsum, and Glenwood Springs. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me on. Matt, according to the counters on the trailheads, you're seeing visitation numbers way up for this spring. Just how many people are we talking about? We are. Um, and it's difficult to put a, a finite definitive number to that. But um, on some public land manager meetings we've had recently, we're seeing a, a shift, a, approximately an average of 50 percent or more increase in use over historical numbers um, from the months of March, April, May and June. On top of that, about 30 percent of these visitors are showing that they're first time users in these areas. And do you believe that there's a correlation between this sudden influx and COVID-19? Uh, there, there is. This is a trend that's been coming for a while. Um, but given the, some of the, the orders and the restrictions, people have been cooped up. Um, they've, they've been restricted on what they're allowed to do. A lot of the, the activities that cities provide for folks are closed down. So outdoors was kind of the place everyone was looking um, for entertainment. So this is this pandemic has kind of put us into a fast forward mode um, and encouraging people to get outside and recreate. Um, this was, like I said, this has been coming for a while, but this is definitely increasing the, the rate at which that's happening. And how are the new crowds in Colorado's wilderness affecting the wildlife? We've seen kind of a, a couple different types of, of reactions to this. Um, for some of our, our species, you know, that, that need sanctuary and, and require some sort of solitude. Um, more people introduced into these areas is definitely displacing them or, or having them move off of, of areas. Uh, this was especially critical during the spring time frame when animals were on production sites. Um, the, the second part to it is kind of the opposite. Um, people staying at home, you know, pe- when people weren't in, in the, the outdoors, we were seeing a, a drastic change in the reduction in bear issues. Um, people were being more tentative or, or, um, and were paying attention to what they were doing with their trash. They weren't having to put trash out the night before because they were leaving for work at three in the morning. So we saw an, a lot of a compliance in um, trash violations. And as a result, we had a lot fewer bear conflicts. Wow. And on July 1st, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is requiring anyone over 18 who wants to fish or hunt on state-owned properties to get a permit. Is this in response to those COVID-19 crowds? Um, and, and so you're correct. As of July 1st, Colorado Parks and Wildlife has a new regulation. It's a statewide regulation, which anybody, doesn't matter if you're hunting or fishing, anybody accessing uh, state-owned lands, that's all parks and wildlife-owned properties, state wildlife areas, will be required to have a valid hunting or fishing license. So even if you're on there just to hike or to picnic or whatever the case may be, you will be required to have a valid hunting or fishing license to be on the property. Um, this, the, the timing is impeccable. Um, we're, we're seeing, you know, this was 100% in response to the increased uses on state wildlife areas. State properties were purchased and were acquired for wildlife management, um, for the protection of wildlife habitat, and for wildlife-related recreation. Because of the, that trend that we were seeing even pre-COVID with um, going back to 
people wanting to get outside and recreate, we were looking to protect some of these lands and to, to curb some of the uses just to get back to the mandate for state properties. And like you said, this is a first for that kind of measure. Larry, in an effort to replenish the dwindling elk herds in Steamboat Springs last Wednesday, biologists from the Colorado Parks and Wildlife held a public meeting to unveil a proposed plan to limit tags for archery hunting, whereas before it was open season. Initially, COVID-19 was great for Colorado's wildlife because animals could sense that people had gone inside. They actually sniffed around, smelled the coast was clear, and ventured back into their old territories like Matt gave us a little bit of a picture of. Give me an example of that, Larry. Yes, I'd be happy to. So while the lockdown was terrible for us humans, it was just totally awesome for the wildlife, Um, particularly Colorado um, wildlife. And I'll give you a few examples. I live uh, within a mile of Steamboat Springs Ski Resort. And at the end of May, we had a elk herd feeding on Mount Werner Surfer. And I mean, the end of March, we had a uh, elk herd feeding at the base of the ski area, Mount Werner Circle, which they never would have because of all of the traffic and spring break. And if you just take a look around the state, you had a bighorn sheep herd walking through residential parts of Idaho Springs. You had a pride of mountain lions walking down the center of residential streets um, in Boulder. And then finally, in Golden High School, an elk herd decided to reclaim its original habitat, which apparently was the 40-yard line of the local football field. (laughs) So for two months... That wildlife thought it was great, and then it flipped. Uh, just like what Matt said, is all of a sudden people were cooped up, and and wanted to get to the great outdoors. And we've seen anecdotally the same thing that Matt has seen on Buffalo Pass nearby, very popular place. It is just packed now, dispersed camping all over, which means not organized or specified campsites and so forth. So we've definitely have seen the change. Are wildlife more sensitive to humans than we tend to think? I think in general, yes. Now, there's some that, you know, maybe chipmunks, it's, it's not a deal. But in general, studies have shown that people who are out hiking recreation um, totally underestimate the impact that they're having. And a great example is elk. It's a species we know a lot of about. And, uh, and science experiments with radio callers have shown that hikers or people on horseback, just hiking through can disturb elk as far as 500 yards from the trail. But as those speeds increase, like mountain biking or ATVs, that can go as far as 1,500 yards from the trail. And if it's just a few people hiking, it's not a problem. The issue is when these get really um, uh, highly trafficked, that you find the wildlife just wanting to stay away from those areas. And then you get, you know, habitat fragmentation and disruption. So when we're on a crowded trail, it's the animals that we're not seeing that we're really stressing out. And yes. And this has been really, um, has been shown that people, because they, they'll see an elk or a deer, they say, hey, I'm not impacting them. But it's really in the statistics. If you take a look at the overall population that inhabits that area, and this has been shown on radio collared elk and deer, you can see them moving away um, and less populating the areas that are near those trails, even though that might be great habitat for them. 
Matt, since the state was still shut down during Memorial Day, this is really the first time some restrictions will have been lifted for camping during a holiday. Are you concerned about the abnormally high recreational traffic this week heading into the 4th of July weekend? Oh, absolutely. And we've already seen a lot of evidence. As I mentioned, Buffalo Pass for the last two weekends been highly trafficked um, to the point that there's just there's almost no space on the side of the roads. And and I don't mind people getting out to the outdoors. That's great for people to get out. You know, what's really important, though, is that they uh, not impact the terrain that they're on, that they dispose of their waste properly and clean up after themselves and so forth. Um, I'm afraid July 4th, we're going to have a lot of impact. Matt, what do you think about this? I agree. Uh, I think it's great that people are getting out and recognizing where we live. Um, that's it's a one of the special aspects about our state. Um, in addition to some of the, the human impacts and the concerns on that front, I think one of the other things, is, especially as a, a law enforcement agency, parks and wildlife officers are, we're, we're kind of bracing for, um, with a lot of these first-time users, there are people going into the woods that don't know what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And we're concerned that people may be entering into a realm that is a little bit uncomfortable for them and may put them in a precarious situation. Well, Larry and Matt, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks, Avery. Thank you very much, Avery. Larry Desardin heads up the Steamboat Springs Area Wilderness Advocacy Group Keep Route Wild. Matt Yamashita is the Area Wildlife Manager for the Roaring Fork and Eagle Valley. Another draw to the high country are Colorado's mountain gambling towns. They're open again after being shut down for three months due to COVID-19. But in Central City, there's much more at stake than hoping people show up to place their bets. CPR's Sarah Mulholland reports. Just out of earshot of the slot machines that have been turned back on, Mayor Jeremy Fay walks down the street in Central City. He likes to show people around, but there aren't many visitors right now. We are seeing the effects of COVID, so there would be more people out and about if it wasn't for the virus. But I don't want to exaggerate what it would have looked like without the virus because we are a sleepy town. Jeff Aiken has lived in Central City for 45 years. He's working the door at the Bonanza on the day the casinos reopen. He's trying to stay optimistic, but says the pandemic has been a big blow. He's not sure how Central City will emerge on the other side. Our city took a big hit. The pandemic is upending communities across the country. Here, Faye says Central City has lost $640,000 in revenue since March. Central City lives in the shadow of Black Hawk, one mile down the road. Colorado's gambling scene isn't Las Vegas, but when casino operators do want to build large hotels and shiny towers in Colorado, they usually do it in Black Hawk. That's one reason Central City was struggling before the pandemic hit. Every single one of these buildings was a casino in 1995. In the late 90s, casinos were leaving for Black Hawk. Faye points to a string of vacant storefronts on Main Street, where many of the buildings date back to the 19th century. When they started building the mega casinos, it was very difficult for the smaller ones to survive. Doc Holliday didn't. It closed its doors in 2013. The cavernous space is still vacant. It feels like a ghost town saloon, but Faye says Bob Dylan played one of his first sets outside of his home state on the small stage here. The story there goes that he had 
a 10-day residency, but he got booed out of town after a couple days because he was opening for a burlesque show. And the fellows were like, what's this hippie stuff? Faye is the son of legendary concert producer Barry Faye. He came to town from Denver with an agenda to turn the tiny mining town into a destination for arts and culture. He wants to bolster Central City's gambling economy with music festivals and art shows. He imagines the old Doc Holiday space as an art center, but the process has been slow going even before the pandemic struck. It's a conundrum. I really naively thought when I decided to come up here that... Not that it would be easy, nothing good is ever easy, but that it would make sense to everyone and I would be able to galvanize all the stakeholders in the same direction. And I'm still trying to get that done, so. Faye's plan hinges in part on the town's historic opera house. The opera is the backbone of our cultural existence up here in Central City. But that's where the pandemic has struck a place like this twice. The opera house is closed indefinitely due to COVID-19. Central City's sleepy vibe is appealing to some visitors. It's a place where everybody knows your name. Cindy Spellman owns the Dostal Alley Casino and Brewery. From the outside, it doesn't look like a casino. It looks like a local bar. She's relieved to be welcoming guests after being shut down due to the pandemic. She takes everyone's temperature and asks them about a list of symptoms. Fever, cough, sore throat, chills, muscle pain, headache, loss of taste, new loss of smell. Tawny Bordner is playing Big Ben, one of the Dostal's 31 open slot machines. She lives a little over an hour away in Strasbourg, east of DIA. I like the people that own it. I like that it's a small casino, it's not corporate. And I love the fact that they make their own beer here. It's the best beer here. Tawny has a mask pushed down around her neck. Generally, she doesn't mind wearing it. No, I don't, except when I'm trying to drink my beer. Nobody seems to mind the mandate to wear masks in the casinos. It's not a political statement. People are just looking for some fun. But the pandemic could make it harder for Faye to build momentum. It's been difficult to get everybody to agree on how best to invest in the future of Central City. I think people want to see shovels in the ground or cranes in the air before they can say, oh, it's now time for me to come along. For now, Faye's big plans may have to wait due to the pandemic. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. When we come back, as the election cycle gets into full swing, we explore the idea of voter suppression, disguised as a way to ensure equity for all. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News will bring you the latest on the Colorado Senate primary on Tuesday with reports throughout the day and a live Colorado Matters at 7 p.m. Ryan Warner and Joanne Allen will be joined by CPR News reporters in the field, including Caitlin Kim in Washington, D.C. Tune in to hear about the race to take on Republican Senator Cory Gardner in the fall, which could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. Your source for 2020 election coverage is CPR News. As calls for racial justice and reform continue, we want to listen back to a conversation we had earlier this year about voter suppression. The election cycle is ramping up, and it's also the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which says a vote cannot be denied on the basis of sex. Carol Anderson is the chair of African-American studies at Emory University in Atlanta. She's the author of One Person, No Vote. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with Anderson when she was in Denver in February. 
You call voter suppression a huge problem for African Americans. You refer to what's happening today as Jim Crow 2.0. You know, with longstanding constitutional and other legal protections in place, help people understand what you mean. And I'd like to say that it's not only just a problem for African Americans, it's a problem for American democracy. Because what's happening is that we are eliminating swaths, large swaths of American citizens from being able to choose their representatives. And so the way that this works is that, you know, we know that we have the 15th Amendment of the Constitution that was a Reconstruction Amendment. It came out after the Civil War. And one of those pieces in there, and it says, the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That almost seems rock solid, doesn't it? Certainly sounds ironclad. Not quite. When you think about that, that amendment came through in 1870. Since that time, we had massive disfranchisement with the Mississippi Plan of 1890 that systematically figured out how do you get around the 15th Amendment by using the societally imposed conditions on African Americans, like poverty, illiteracy because of not funding public schools, like the good character clause where you had to have three whites approve your your character uh, before you could vote, all of those sorts of, the white primary, all of these sorts of measures. By the time we got to 1940, only 3% of African Americans were registered to vote in the South. 3%. This is also the same period of time in which we would have seen poll taxes, right? Absolutely. So we're seeing the poll tax. Um, that was also part of the Mississippi plan. And the way the poll tax worked was, and remember that voter suppression always sounds reasonable. It always sounds like it's in service to protecting democracy, when in fact, it's anything but. And Interesting. So, so what, what is, messages are used? Yeah. Yeah. So it says, so what the Mississippi state legislature said was in 1890, we are here to end corruption in our elections, end corruption at the ballot box. And so we have a series of measures here that will guarantee the sanctity of the right to vote, guarantee the sanctity of the ballot box, guarantee the sanctity of democracy. I mean, it's got red, white, and blue flag waving all over it. Who doesn't want to fight for the sanctity of democracy? Who doesn't want to ensure that our elections are clean and that when you vote and you cast that ballot, that it is counted and your representative if your representative gets the most votes. I mean, this is flag-waving USA, yay, except what it actually was designed to do was to stop American citizens from voting. And what was the justification in particular of a poll tax? And the justification for the poll tax is that it said democracy is expensive, you know, you're having all of these elections, and so you got to have a place where people are casting their ballots. You got to have people who are taking the ballots. You got to have people who are counting the ballots. And if you really believed in democracy, you would be willing to pay a small fee, a small tax in order to ensure that democracy ran smoothly. So you see how that language also puts the onus on the individual and not the state. Okay, so this still sounds like... Reasonable. Well, I don't know about reasonable, but it sounds like 
history. It sounds like something that happened in the past. And you say these currents continue. Talk to me about the 2.0. Absolutely. One of the, the significant breaches. So remember, we had the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which finally put some heft behind the 15th Amendment of the Constitution. But the Supreme Court's decision in 2013, Shelby County v. Holder, is where the U.S. Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, gutted what is called the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act. What the preclearance provision did was it said that states that it had a history of discriminating against its citizens. Many of them southern states, though not all. Not all, but many, um, because you had to have a demonstrated history of discrimination and you had to use one of those devices from the, uh, the Mississippi plan, such as a poll tax, such as a literacy test. If you had those two things working together and you had fewer than 50 percent of your age eligible adults registered to vote, it was like a canary in the mind. You knew something was really sick and twisted, toxic happening in that democracy. And if you were going to make any changes to how people voted, you had to run that by the authorities, essentially, right. the preclearance. Right. You had to run it by the U.S. Department of Justice or by the federal courts in D.C. Now, the high court ruled that section of the Voting Rights Act unconstitutional because they said it was based on an old formula. I'm just quoting the Brennan Center here. As a practical matter, it means that this section is inoperable until Congress enacts a new formula, which the decision invited Congress to do. Do you have faith that Congress would act? Not this Congress. So what we saw coming in from the House of Representatives um, after the 2018 election. So in 2019, the House of Representatives passed H.R. 1, which was a series of voting rights measures. And there also has been just laying in Congress two measures to re-up the Voting Rights Act. None of those measures have, have gotten through a Republican-dominated Senate. Okay, you use the term Republican there. Oh, yes. Is this a partisan issue? That is to say, do you see more violations uh, in your mind by one party than another? I would say that there is absolute rock-solid evidence that it is, unfortunately, that the right to vote is a partisan issue. And it doesn't need to be. It shouldn't be. It is about American democracy. Um, but what we're seeing, and so I'm going to do some quick history here again, is that after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 65, you saw the Southern Democrats break away from the Democratic Party. And they were wooed into and moved into the Republican Party. That group, then basically the toxin that they brought of anti-civil rights, anti-blackness, anti-anti, began to take over the moderates in the Republican Party and move the Republican Party so far to the right that as the demographics in America changed, that party's policies couldn't resonate. And so the response was to figure out how do we stop key segments of the voting population who cannot resonate with our policies? How do we stop them from voting? And so that's why you begin to see these kinds of targets that also then sound very reasonable until you pull it back and you see the targeting. I'll take yeah, give me Yeah, give me an example. Yeah, so you, you talked about the arguments early on 
to reduce the vote as being kind of wrapped in the flag and, you know, carried in the talons of, of a, of a, of a <laughs> bald eagle. Where do you hear that today? And so you hear it in terms of stopping voter fraud. And, you know, they're trying to steal our elections. We have all of these non-citizens that are trying to vote. And so we must protect democracy. You heard that coming out of, of President Trump as he talked about voter fraud and people trying to steal the election. You hear that coming out of uh, Governor Kemp out of Georgia. You hear that in that language. So let me give you some specifics because we're talking generalities here. In North Carolina, for instance, when uh, the Republicans took over in North Carolina after the 2010 election, they began to implement a series of policies. What they did, though, was they asked for racialized data on a series of things. One of that dealt with who has what types of IDs by race, what do they have and what don't they have? And then the North Carolina legislature crafted the voter ID law to emphasize the kinds of IDs that whites have and de-emphasize the kinds of IDs that African-Americans have. And there's evidence pointing to this. There's incredible um, heart-wrenching evidence about this. And this is what led the Fourth Circuit to look at North Carolina in a lawsuit and say, you have targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. This law is racially discriminatory. You know, in a piece late last year for the Brookings Institution, uh, sociologist Rashawn Ray and Pastor Mark Whitlock of an AME mega church in Maryland wrote, Black people not wanting to vote simply isn't empirically true relative to other racial groups. The reason I bring this up is that there is a longstanding kind of narrative in this country, like... Black folk don't vote. Uh, And they go on to say, we must take into account the ways that blacks are systematically denied the ability to vote. With the rolling back of the Voting Rights Act, we're seeing from North Carolina, as you mentioned, to Texas and the upper Midwest, the ways that black voters are targeted. So it, it goes on. Before we chastise black people, can we address voter disenfranchisement and gerrymandering and set the record straight on voter turnout? Absolutely. I mean, one of the the things that led me to, in fact, write One Person No Vote was after the 2016 election, the pundits are all talking. And one of the first things that comes out is that, well, you know, black people just didn't show up for Hillary. They just didn't show up. You know, it's because Hillary is Hillary. You know, so black people just stayed home. And in fact, black voter turnout went down by 7 percent in the 2016 presidential election from the 2012 election. But that was the 2016 was the first presidential election in 50 years without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And so having pundits not take into account that the law that had been in place, put in place to ensure that you had access to the ballot box, that that law had been gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court. So you saw states doing things like these voter ID laws where, for instance, in Alabama, where your driver's license counts, but your public housing ID doesn't count for a government-issued photo ID, and where the governor then shuts down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties. Um, So you create an obstacle based on the lie of voter fraud, and then you create an obstacle to the obstacle, the inability to be able to get access to getting that ID. 
I just want to say that there are more claims of voter fraud than there seem to be actual cases of them. It's not that they don't exist, but I think the reporting shows very clearly that they are often overstated. Vastly overstated. Justin Levitt, a law professor out of California, he did a study from 2000 to 2014. He added up all of the votes in the elections in the United States, and there were one billion votes. He found 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud out of one billion votes over 15 years. So that's about two a year. That's not the massive rampant voter fraud that we hear being just extolled all the time. Instead, we already have the mechanisms in place to catch it. So if we have the mechanisms in place, if voter fraud is not this massive rampant thing, then why do we have voter ID? Because it becomes a mechanism by saying, like in Texas, your student ID from the University of Texas doesn't count as a government-issued photo ID, but your gun registration card does. You can shape the electorate by figuring out which groups have what types of IDs and then making those the holy grail into access for the, to the ballot box. Texas's argument there was that the gun permit was issued by the state and consistent across Texas, which mm-hmm. is you know bigger than a lot of countries, and that university IDs were pretty specific to each school, mm-hmm. and so that that was susceptible to fraud. Right. You, you think I sound like the reasonable voice from back in the day now? <laughs> yeah, that sounds that you know, the, and that's what you hear. But think about it. So Texas doesn't say, okay, is there a way that we can make those IDs from our public universities? Um, so that consistent, consistent. Mm-hmm. I mean, so instead of going that route, Texas chooses not to go that route. I mean, so this is fascinating because there's a nuance in the voter ID conversation I'm hearing here that I haven't heard elsewhere. It actually doesn't sound to me like you think it's unreasonable to ask for an ID, but that there are ways to craft such a law that wind up being discriminatory. Okay, but that's not what I'm saying. I do think it's unreasonable to ask. And I think it's unreasonable to ask. There will be any number of people who disagree with you on that. I know that. Lord, do I know that. Um, Because it's unreasonable to ask because the foundation for asking for an ID is to stop all of this massive rampant voter fraud. Except the proponents of voter ID cannot point to cases of massive rampant voter fraud. So Greg Abbott out of Texas, when he has to go before Judge Ramos to justify the voter ID law in Texas, and he says, we have massive rampant voter fraud. She says, how many? He's like, massive, how many? And he has to point to two cases out of 20 million votes. You think that this is a a solution in search of a problem, it sounds like. Absolutely. But, But it strikes me that our confidence in the voting system is also very important. If we perceive it as whole, if we perceive it as having integrity, perhaps we are more likely to vote, to participate. And so part of what we have to understand are two things. One, the current impact of the voter ID law. So that in Wisconsin, in the 2016 election, 8% of whites were blocked from voting because of the voter ID law. And over 25% of African Americans were blocked because of the voter ID law. So we're, we're seeing disparate impact, one. 
to the issue of confidence in the electoral no. system. We have to understand that the unease was a manufactured problem. We think of, and I'm going to take us back to the 2000 election, and we often think of that 2000. Bush, Bush Gore. Bush Gore. And I often Hanging think, chads. <laughs> and so we always go to Florida, but the issue for voter fraud, the way we understand it now, came out of Missouri. This is the St. Louis purging of voters, I think. Right. You write about this in the book. Yes. St. Louis illegally purged almost 50,000 voters, 49,000 plus voters, wiped them off the rolls, didn't tell them. They go to vote. Their names aren't on the rolls. They, the poll workers send them downtown to the Board of Elections. Board of Elections books are a hot mess. I think they did send out notices. The question is whether people got them. Right. I mean, it, it was an illegal purge. It was very clear that it was illegal. And so time was just wasted downtown and trying to get folks back on the books. And so as time is going down, the Democrats then sue to keep the polls open past seven o'clock because people have been downtown for hours. And this is all in the shadow, by the way, of the same day that, that, that Florida's coming down. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. A narrative that you think gets lost. I, yeah, I absolutely believe that Missouri gets lost. And so the judge then rules that the polls can stay open until 10. Shortly after that ruling, the Republicans come in with another judge, a higher court, that rules that the polls have to shut down. So 45 minutes, so at 745, the polls shut down. So you've got a lot of people who haven't come through. Now, the narrative that uh, U.S. Senator Kit Bond and the Secretary of State in Missouri, Matt Blunt, are saying is that what the Democrats were trying to do was to create massive voter fraud. And Kit Bond pointed to, you know, look, you've got all of these people who are, you know, we've got dead people voting. We've got dogs on the rolls voting. We've got all of these vacant lots where people are coming back using the addresses from these vacant lots. They're trying to steal the election. And that language of stealing the election and voter fraud then took hold as Bond went into Congress, as Congress is passing the Help America Vote Act, to deal with the lack of confidence coming out of Florida and the hanging chads. And so the language of voter fraud and its solution, voter IDs, then gets put into federal law as if that voter fraud was real. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I love local newspapers, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch did an investigation into Senator Bond's charges. There was one dog on the rolls named Ritzy Meckler. Um, His owners thought it would be really funny to register their dog to vote. But there's no evidence that Ritzy or Lassie or Rin Tin Tin (laughs) voted, okay? Um, There was a dead guy on the rolls, but there's no evidence that he actually voted. And those vacant lots, the city hadn't updated its list. And so at least 82% of those so-called vacant lots actually had homes on them. So as they're going through and investigating this, they found perhaps four cases of something awry with voters. But they noted that voter ID laws would not have stopped those four voters. Mm. But you get this 
creating almost like a McCarthyist red scare, um, the sphere of communism, communism, communism. We get the same kind of PR about the fear of voter fraud, voter fraud, that then gets the public to say, protect us. Carol, you're in Colorado. You know this. Uh, And I want to ask you a few questions about voting here. So this state recently scrapped its presidential caucuses in favor of a Super Tuesday primary. There are still caucuses for down-ballot races. Mm -hmm. I I wonder what your assessment is of caucuses versus primaries. I see caucuses as some of the least democratic methods of selecting candidates. And I think and yet it feels so grassroots. It feels people, so gr- people if, gathering in a gymnasium. Right? Like, that's if so beautiful. If you get child care, if you, you don't work that evening or, you know, you're working two jobs. I mean, so it, it the caucuses and, and people gathering, it feels so grassroots, but it's actually quite exclusionary on so many different ways. Whereas the primaries, if done correctly really begins a kind of full embrace of American democracy. So I like going the primary route. It seems that Colorado doesn't trust either <laughs> Republicans or Democrats. Good. Be- because with, with <laughs> Amendment Y, mm-hmm. passed by Colorado voters in 2016, there's this independent board to draw new congressional district boundaries rather than having political parties mm-hmm. do the divvying up. Mm-hmm. Do you think steps like that make voting more fair? Absolutely, because what we have seen, particularly with extreme partisan gerrymandering, is that... And it sounds like you, you see that from both sides. Oh, yes. I mean, when we, so when we've been talking about voter suppression, we've often been talking about the Republicans. There is one element of voter suppression where you also see the Democrats engaged, and that's in gerrymandering. And the reason why that's voter suppression is that because it draws the districts, not so you get one person, one vote, but that you overemphasize some districts and some populations and de-emphasize the electoral voices and votes of other populations. It is fundamentally wrong. And so what these nonpartisan redistricting commissions do is that instead of having the Democrats trying to draw the districts to keep more of their representatives or to get more representatives and more power or the Republicans trying to draw the districts to get more more of their representatives and more of the power. These independent, nonpartisan redistricting commissions really look at those kinds of standards about contiguous, compact, right, right, and draw the districts so that you really do get fair representation. One person, one vote. Not a salamander looking district, which is how the gerrymandering got its name. What about your own personal experience growing up, perhaps, formed the path you're on today? My father fought in World War II in a Jim Crow army, fighting for a democracy that wasn't going to fight for him. That is amazing to me. And he fought in Korea, too. He was career military. And then when he got out of the army and we moved to Columbus, Ohio, my mother found a home on Oakland Park that she loved. Uh, Finally, no military housing. And, (laughs) (laughs) And... The realtor said, no, that's not where you people live. I'll show you where you people live. And you know, you begin to think about this. This is a man who has risked his life fighting for the United States of America. And in this moment, he's you people, unworthy of being able to purchase a home that his wife loves in a neighborhood that she loves. 
there's something really wrong with that. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Carol Anderson is the chair of African-American studies at Emory University. She spoke with Ryan Warner in February during a visit to Denver to speak at History Colorado. Her most recent book is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Thank you for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.